So good evening, everyone. It actually feels like forever to me since I spoke with you. I think it was Tuesday morning instructions and now it's Friday night. So I hope you still remember who I am. <laughs> hmm. I just spent the uh, 6.45 sit um, battling with Mara. <laughs> all the voices in my head saying, you know, who the hell are you to be sitting up here? What, it is, what is it that you have to share? Uh, memories of being in kindergarten and getting a needs improvement show and tell. It's scarred me for my life. And, um, you know, these things can happen so long ago and they're still, still present. So, uh, in this moment, just feeling um, a little anxious, a little nervous. Um, I don't tend to be someone who writes Dharma talks, though my left brain always says, have something prepared. So it's kind of over here and I'll refer to it um, as I need. But first I would just love to acknowledge um, just how inspired I am by all your practice, walking, sitting, participating in groups, um, in individual meetings. Temple and I have, and uh, other teachers, Dory, who have been here teaching together for the last little while are just amazed, like, this group is so good. <laughs> that they're actually following the schedule, you know? That they're in the hall when it's time to be in the hall and they're out walking when it's time to be walking. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was teaching a teen meditation retreat, which is a totally <laughs> different scene. So it's like, wow, these guys behave themselves. <laughs> so um, just deep bows of um, this gratitude and respect for really the hard work that it takes to, to be on this path, to do this practice. It actually takes a really courageous, strong, and powerful person to do it. And although you may not necessarily feel that a lot of the time while you're here, it's actually true. It actually takes a really strong, courageous, and powerful person to sit and give a Dharma talk. <laughs> and I'm just grateful for my colleagues who have offered their wisdom and experience to share with you. And what I appreciate about the teaching team is that um, we're all so different from each other and we have very different backgrounds and perspectives and insights to share. So hopefully this will land for at least one of you. <laughs> so like we've talked about all through the week, you know, it's, uh, it's a challenge to go within and begin to um, unpack all that's there. You know, it's uh, the saying that um, I can't even hear myself think, you know, when we're out in the world and there's just so much going on and so many distractions that here you are, you know, on this retreat and in noble silence and able to have the opportunity to actually hear yourself think. And that's not very pleasant either. 
And so, um, you know, to me, a lot of this practice is not about feeling good or about feeling pleasant or being positive. It's about being with life as it is. And how do we develop um, a sense of strength and resilience and fortitude to just keep going? You know, as Enrique beautifully shared in his loving kindness practice this past week. You know, teaching is not a comfortable thing for me. I think I counted that I only teach in front of about 80 to 100 people three or four times a year. And being an introvert, it's really difficult to feel like connecting, you know, with 80 to 100 people at a time. It's so much easier in a smaller group. And so for me, this is actually a practice of just being with what's uncomfortable and just keep going. You know, as a child, um, I felt like there was something just innately wrong with me from the beginning. That at the age of five, realized that, you know, I was born in the wrong body. That this was not who I was supposed to be. That God had made a mistake. And that intuitively, way back then, I knew that it wasn't okay to be who I was. And so I developed all kinds of strategies and mechanisms to feel some sense of belonging, some sense of like I was acceptable or lovable. And what that looked like was that I would be whatever everyone else wanted me to be, especially my parents, especially my peers, and eventually people that I would get involved with. I could not truly be or express who I was. And what I love about watching, you know, little ones now, uh, little uh, trans kids, you know, saying at the ages of two, three, or four to their parents as if, like, it was a no-brainer, like, I'm not this, I'm that. Like, I could not have even imagined that possibility when I was that age. I actually believe that, you know, the young people, the babies that are being born now are actually a lot more woke than we'll ever be. Um, and I see it in all of you, and I see it in the teens that I work with, that there's just this level of open-mindedness and fluidity and open-heartedness that just comes so naturally. And for some reason, generations before them um, have just kind of lost that ability. And that's, I think, why I know I practice, was, is to get back to that true nature, my own Buddha nature, my own innate goodness. And I recognize and acknowledge that many of us come from different backgrounds and experiences and traumas and histories that impact how we show up in the world. And that's another reason why it's difficult to teach to so many people. It's because, um, you know, for some people it may piss them off and for other people they may totally resonate with it in the same talk. And so it's always a risk. But all I can speak from is my own experience. And as an immigrant transgender person of color, um, to find freedom and to find true happiness through this practice, through these teachings, to me is nothing short of a miracle. 
And in coming here to these retreats and sharing who I am and my experiences is my hope, my wish, that you can find that for yourself as well. So it is truly a superpower to be awake and aware. And it's one that can be cultivated and developed over time. And if this is your first retreat, you know, I can't guess like what it's been like for you. Um, but I've been on this path for 20 years and I still get freaked out about things and I still um, doubt myself and I still uh, can get insecure at times. But I think what has shifted over that period of time is this level of being okay with that rather than judgmental or critical of that. There's a um, quote that uh, I really uh, really like that is from um, a person that I'm trying to find right now. <laughs> um, where did it go? Anyway, I can't find it at the moment. I don't really write good notes for myself on this. It's like all these words and I can't find it. So anyway, to help me relax, I'm going to sing you a song. (laughs) And I know a lot of you have had um, jukebox mind or playlist mind, I guess as you would call it these days. Um, And I thought, you know, when someone brought that up this morning that, oh my God, singing that American Pie song probably perpetuated that. So yeah, so I'm sorry. (laughs) So... um, This one is about how through the medium of silence we actually can understand the Dharma. Hello, Sangha, dearest friends. We've come to sit with you again. Taking refuge from the outside world to explore the depths of inner swirl and to cultivate a heart that can hold it all. The Buddha's call, not booty call. <laughs> As we hold noble silence, with restless minds we stand our ground. We won't let it bring us down. With wisdom and compassion we'll prevail. Greed, hate, delusion are the ultimate fail. To hold to my aspiration to wake up and not erupt as we hold noble silence, as we guard each other's peace to acknowledge and release the thoughts and feelings that no longer serve to discern the wants of truth and verve as we strive for the diligence of the Buddha's call to be with it all, as we hold noble silence. So yogis, as we bow and pray, trust Buddha nature, don't delay. Understanding is a crucial key for conditions so that all can be free. As we trust in the Dharma to open up our hearts and minds 
from karmic binds as we hold noble silence. Please honor this our sacred space. Useless chatter will erase. May our beings be calm and still to engage the wisdom of free will and the promise of the Dharma to guide us well from impending hell <laughs> as we hold noble silence. <laughs> I just want to sing the Dharma. I just want to have a musical like Dharma the Musical. <laughs> so much easier. So as Joanna was saying in her Dharma talk the other night, you know, the Bob Marley song about uh, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. None but ourselves can free our minds. It's so true. You know, it's really only up to us to decide you know, actually claim our belonging, you know, to this earth, to these teachings, to these practices. You know, as someone who's always felt on the outside or, or other from everything mainstream, uh, even when I would go to LGBTIQ retreats or people of color retreats, there was always this sense of like, I didn't belong there. Like I wasn't queer enough or I wasn't a person of color enough. And I noticed like how much suffering I derived from feeling that way. And then I got this insight after sitting with that suffering for a while of like, well, what if I just claimed that I belong no matter where I was? It didn't matter who was around me or what they were thinking or possibly what they were thinking about me. And it was one of the most like empowering insights I ever got. You know, this sense of, um, you know, like the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree and just saying, you know, to Mara, it's like, you know, I deserve to be here. You know, it's my birthright uh, with the earth as my witness. But it took a long time to like claim that belonging, you know, uh, just constantly questioning uh, who I was and whether I was worth um, being loved and being accepted because everything around me, culture, society, told me that it wasn't okay to be me. And so, you know, I came to this practice because I was suffering a lot. And I'm guessing that most of us come to the practice because we suffer a lot. I mean, how many people do you know that are really happy come to these retreats? You know, and it's like, oh, I had nothing better to do, so I thought I'd just check it out. <laughs> but some deep suffering brings us to this place. And for me, it was a, a pretty um, bad, bad breakup. And the common denominator in all my bad relationships was me. And so I had to take responsibility for that, and I just thought, well, maybe if I took a good look inward through this practice that I really avoided because I just couldn't sit still when I was younger. Um, I always felt like I needed to move around. That maybe that would help. And, and it did. But it wasn't easy. And, um, and I, I got to the point where I, 
I actually felt like I, maybe I'll, I'll just give up relationships altogether and I'll just like join a monastery, you know, then I won't have to think about being in relationship to other people. Well, we know how some monasteries go. It's not any better there. It's just like a microcosm of the larger world. And so um, while I was still contemplating whether to join the monastery, um, I was going through the personal ads in the paper uh, just because I was at the dentist and I just wanted something to do. And um, I saw this one particular ad and thought, okay, maybe just like one more fling before the monastery. (laughs) And so... I'm a greedy Buddhist personality type, so it's like I didn't want to give it up all right away. So, um, so I answered the ad, and we met for dinner, and uh, as soon as I met Wendy, um, she looked really familiar to me, and I said, do I know you from somewhere? And she's like, I don't think so, and we got to talking, and we actually found out that we both meditated. And she asked me where I meditated, and I told her, and she's like, you know, I don't belong to that sangha, but I... Um, went to a New Year's retreat about a year ago uh, with them. And in my mind, I went, ding, ding, ding. That's where I know her from. Because she was my Vipassana romance on that retreat. (laughs) And I just thought, okay, don't say anything, because you need to, like, you know, make sure she's not a little whatever, and just, you know, play out the date. And we did. And at the end of the date, she said, well, what do you think? And I felt safe enough to say, you know, um, actually on that retreat, I actually had a big crush on you. And she said, well, I think that calls for a second date. So we've been together 16 years since. So not to um, uh, promote Vipassana romances (laughs) here on retreat. I'm going to get yelled at by Temple probably at the teacher meeting later. But... um, but when I was there, I let it go, right? I worked with it, you know, and for those of you who are not very clear about Vipassana romances, it's like when you sort of like date, marry, and divorce a person at the same <laughs> retreat, you know? It's like you just go through all this stuff. But I, I let it go, and then it was something conspired to bring us back together. And at that point, I, I also was clear about what I wanted from my relationships in the future. I was always attracted to unavailable people. Anybody else have that problem? Yeah. And, um, and so I was clear that I wanted someone who was available. I wanted someone who was on some sort of spiritual path. It didn't necessarily have to be mine. I wanted somebody who had done a lot of work on themselves, who, um, you know, was, was pretty, pretty stable. And two months into my relationship with Wendy, who is super emotionally available and present, like, you know, checked off all these different things on my bucket list of relationship, um, I was, like, not happy. I even said to her one night, it's like, um, can you play hard to get? (laughs) And she looked at me like, what are you talking about? You already got me. And it was like, wow, it's just not what I was familiar with. You know, I always felt like I had to fight for or like battle, you know, to get someone's attention and love. And it was already there. And it was me standing in the way of just accepting that I was getting what I had asked for. And so, you know, our relationship, I mean, and I never imagined being in a long-term relationship. I always thought of you know, long-term relationship and marriage is like, you know, like you're in prison and you have like no freedom and there's like no way out. And, 
And for me, it's been like the total opposite. I have never felt so deeply seen and gotten and loved and forgiven by anyone. That helped me honor that within myself. That, you know, it was at this point where like so many people would tell me they loved me, they, they enjoyed my company, they loved being with me. I could just never believe it. Do you ever have that feeling of like not being able to like let that in? And so to me, that's the power of relationship. That's the power of Sangha is to help each other remember who we are. Ram Das has a beautiful quote of like, basically what we're doing is just walking each other home. And so in finding that sense of home allowed for me this sense of like being able to be with whatever happens in life. You know, I had this insight in therapy one day where after like seven years of therapy and, um, you know, going on retreats and reading almost every single self-help book that was available and all kinds of workshops on how to be a better person or whatever, you know, I said to my therapist, like, all this stuff, like, it's not about being, for being happy, is it? And she said, well, what do you think it's about? And I said, I think it's really about being fully alive. And she said, you know what, Law, being fully alive is way better than being happy. And that totally transformed the trajectory of my life, of expecting that, you know, to be at peace, to be happy, to be peaceful, and um, without a, a, a worry in the world or a care in the world, that, you know, that would be it. And so to really, um, just like this practice and what you all, I'm guessing, have been experiencing all week, is just this sense of like, no matter what is arising, I can just be with it. I don't necessarily have to believe it. I don't necessarily have to think it's, it's actually me. It's just life living through me. And when I was able to sort of like take a little bit of a back seat in my life, and I, I used to be much so much more of a control freak. I mean, you probably have watched me adjust things a lot up here. You know, it's like, I'm cool with that. <laughs> but I'm done like trying to adjust other people to be a certain way, you know, wanting my parents to be different or wanting my partner to be different or wanting teens to behave differently, you know? It's just like, we're all here, we're all doing the best we can and how can I relate to it differently? And so I did my first long retreat here at Spirit Rock about three years ago and, um, and it was a beautiful retreat. It, you know, I, I never had done a long retreat. And I uh, was two weeks into it and I decided I would make it like half of a Vipassana retreat and half a Metta retreat. And so whenever I did my walking meditation, I would just put my hand on my heart and just offer myself Metta or dedicate my practice to someone that I cared about and just felt my heart just expanding and expanding and expanding. And about, you know, two and a half weeks into the retreat, I was like, wow, I really got this. You know, I think I'm almost there, you know. Got a little dharmically cocky. And, um, and so uh, 
I took this risk and I said to the universe, like, bring it. I, I can do whatever, you know, whatever you got. I'm there. I'm present. I have, my heart is huge. I can handle it. So three weeks into the retreat, I get a knock on the door from the retreat manager. It's not usually a, a good thing when a retreat manager knocks on your door. And so the uh, retreat manager said, you know, your partner called. It's about your mom. And so I decided, um, you know, went to the retreat manager's office and talked to my partner, and she told me that my mom was just diagnosed with a terminal brain tumor, and she had four to six months to live. And that I didn't need to go home, but, you know, if I wanted to, I could. So I sat with it, you know, that afternoon, feeling all the feels around it, Uh, It was a brain tumor that metastasized from breast cancer that my mom had three years earlier. And knowing my mom, I knew she would want me to come home. So I left the retreat uh, a week early. And on the plane ride home, I decided I needed to show up in a different way. I didn't want to fall into the old pattern of how my family dynamics go of everyone freaking out, everybody being codependent on each other, etc. And decided, like, I would just take my practice with me and just be a loving presence and a listening ear and an accepting and compassionate uh, member of the family. And so I visited my mom in the hospital and, you know, she was very happy to see me and... Uh, she was learning how to walk again. She had lost um, use of her left side. And so we were, I was walking her down the hallway. She's got her walker. And, uh, you know, I was telling my mom, you know, like when I was on this retreat, that this is how slowly we actually walk, you know? <laughs> so we were doing a little walking meditation together. And she turned to me and said, um, can you teach me how to meditate? And that was like the last thing I ever expected coming out of my mother's mouth, you know, a very devout Catholic. And I said, um, sure, you know. So I brought her back to her bed, had her lie down, and I uh, started giving her some, you know, um, simple guidance around, you know, her following her breath and just relaxing into her body. And she was totally in the zone almost immediately. And about 10 minutes into the meditation, she woke up, opened her eyes, and said, can you please tape that for me? It's very relaxing. (laughs) And, you know, and then I would also do some Qigong that I, you know, with her that I remembered on retreat, and it was just really sweet to see, like, you know, how limited she was, but yet she was still so into it. There was something that began to open up in my mom, and something that began to open up in me, knowing that we had, I had, I had, four to six months to heal my relationship with my mom. And it was a relationship that was pretty tumultuous. We didn't really agree on very much. And she always told me what to do. Like, uh, she always spoke to me in the imperative. It was always a command. Like, do this, don't do that. Be this, don't be that. And what I got from being on the, the long retreat was that all the card practices that I had received there, I actually, you know, especially around the forgiveness practice, I didn't have to have that conversation with my mom. She didn't know how to have that conversation. I think if I tried, it would have been really disappointing 
for me and I, I would just stop. So what I did was actually have those conversations with her while she was sleeping. And I would tell her all the ways that, you know, um, I felt I caused her harm and I asked for forgiveness. And then I asked, also um, told her ways that I felt she hurt me and I forgave her. And it was just this beautiful process over the next six months. And my mom actually lived six months beyond her prognosis because that's just who she is. My father even once said at one point, like, your mom will never die. She's too stubborn, you know. (laughs) But by the time my mom passed away, I felt free. I felt like I needed to say what I needed, you know, I needed to say what I needed to say, and I said it. And whether she heard me or not, it didn't matter. What it was about was for me to free my own heart. And so... I went to this um, forgiveness uh, retreat back in December here at Spirit Rock. And um, after that retreat, just full of this sense of forgiving energy, I had another meditation where um, I felt like I was channeling my mother. And this is the message that she gave me. And I share it in that, you know, there's so many stories that go through our minds, you know, and I tell my teens all the time, if like, you're going to tell yourself a story, tell yourself a good one. So I don't know like where this came from or how it came through me, but it was in a voice that I've always longed for my mother to talk to me in. And this is what she said. When we came over, we were both so scared to be alone and far away from our families. A hidden deep resentment brew that we never wanted to go back. Too painful, too much pride. You and your sister were all we had left of our families. We couldn't bear to have anything happen to you, so we held on so tight, tried to control to make it all okay, all because we loved you so much and yet didn't know how to show or tell you. It came out as expectation to not really see you for who you actually were, but to be extensions of ourselves. I want to apologize for being so hard and harsh on you. I'm so happy that you found two loving partners in Wendy and Rob. That's my sister's husband, I'm not polygamous. (laughs) I want you to be completely and fully who you are and to be free. We saved so you can be happy to not ever have to worry that you're not going to be okay. We sacrificed so much of ourselves for our pure, undying love for you. We want you to thrive, especially because you'll not be continuing our lineage in the traditional sense. So let us heal our relationships finally. Release us all from all burdens and expectations and low self-esteem. You no longer have to stuff it down or hold on to it anymore. You are both our beautiful children. We love you so much and we ask for your forgiveness so that we can all be happy and free. So call that a gift from the universe or um, 
just a great mystery. You know, it was just uh, a real deep healing, you know, for the kid inside of me that never thought I was ever going to amount to much to my, for my parents. My father is, is still alive and, and it's still like really difficult to connect with him, but yet I can still find um, so much compassion for him and just see, even though he doesn't express it or doesn't know how to process it, you know, how much he misses my mom. And they were not a couple who got along very well. I mean, I often say that, you know, my parents taught me how not to be in relationship. <laughs> but it's like, we just never know what love is for, for people. You know, we can project what we think it should be, but um, I'm really got that that's, that that was really there for them in their own way. And it's helped me understand that, you know, the way I see things is definitely not the way others see things. And in this world that we live in right now, where it just feels like there's just so much division and separation and isolation. To me, this practice calls on us to keep expanding our hearts to include even those that we want to shut out of our hearts. That's, th that's the challenge. Because to do otherwise for me is, is, is not what this practice holds. This practice holds the possibility of love prevailing over hatred, over ignorance, over greed. What I love about um, the practice, um, there's a prayer that I say every morning when I get up and it goes, it's a Tibetan prayer, I call it my bring it prayer. And it goes, grant that I may be given the appropriate difficulties and sufferings on this journey so that my heart may be truly awakened and that my practice of liberation and universal compassion may be truly fulfilled. May all that arises in my experience, whether I like it or not, whether it's difficult and challenging or if it's pleasant and joyful, may it serve to continue to break my heart open to what is and to deepen my sense of compassion for myself and for others, especially those that um, have been marginalized and oppressed. And another thing I really love about this practice is it's just so about re being real. It's about like what truly is the truth of this life, you know? So there's this teaching called the five um, remembrances. And the five remembrances, um, When you first hear them, if you hear them for the first time, it's like, uh, this is really depressing. <laughs> but they go, the first one is, I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. 
The second is, I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape ill health. The third is, I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. And all that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. And the last one, basically you are the heir of your actions. It's like your actions, you know, is the ground that you stand on. So what you say, what you do matters. And so to, to say to a group of young adults, you know, all this, it's like, um, I've always contemplated death ever since I was a little kid and contemplating death for me always informed the preciousness of this life. That there is no guarantee. We just don't know if we'll live till 70, 80, 90 years old. Anything can happen. So to just recognize that the the preciousness of this life, to live it fully in each moment is so crucial. You know, as I begin to age, and some of you may have noticed the, my tattoos, these scars here, I had both my knees replaced in February and suffered for almost a couple of decades with uh, chronic pain of osteoarthritis from athletic injuries from when I was younger. And, um, and just like getting out of bed in the morning is kind of a feat, you know? It's like, oh, <laughs> it's like, I'm only 54. If this is what it feels like now, I can't even imagine, you know, what it's going to be when I'm 55. But, <laughs> so, um, the humility in that, like I haven't actually run in like 20 years and I used to be a, a really big athlete when I was a kid and to lose that ability to run you know, is, is really humbling. And, so, and then to, you know, getting sick, you know, and, and whether it be uh, an illness or disease that's chronic or terminal or even just getting a cold, it's like things happen, you know. How often even, like on this retreat, I came in with like really bad um, asthma and uh, I was like, how am I going to, talk, you know, without having a coughing fit, you know, um, all this worry about like these things happening. And I'm like, well, you're just going to have a coughing fit and then you'll talk, you know, it, it's like, it's just what is. And that the remembrance of, you know, everything that we cherish and treasure, whether it be another human being or a pet or a plant or whatever it is that you love, you know, um, it too will go through all those different stages and will eventually die. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh has this beautiful hugging meditation practice where you hug someone for three breaths and in each uh, breath you say, um, I'm going to die and you're going to die. And, <laughs> and this moment is all we have, you know. But really try it, you know. Um, 
it can be intense, you know, it can be like, um, but it really, like how often do we actually think about dying? Um, so it's, uh, it's a really, really deep practice. And then my actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. So to really get, you know, when we are able to be mindful, which we are not always able to, our speech and our actions reflect who we really are. And, and that doesn't always play out in life. We get distracted, we're feeling stressed, we're really busy. Um, there are even moments when Wendy will say to me, you know, if I'm not being kind to her, you know, can you please treat me like how you treat your friends? And that, I just love being able to get feedback like that because it just like cuts right through to waking me up, you know, that I've been causing this person who has given me so much love and compassion and kindness, um, I haven't given her the respect that she, that she deserves. Like so often, you know, I'll be on my computer and she's talking to me and, and I'll nod my head and, and I'll keep typing. And then she'll say like, you know, did you hear what I said? And I said, yeah, yeah, I did. And she's like, what did I say? <laughs> and I'm like, ah, busted. So to really, to really honor, you know, that we're all doing the best we can. I was talking to several folks during uh, practice meetings today about um, just sitting in the unknown and um, doing the best we can. And, uh, you know, and at times we just forget what we're supposed to remember, you know. The the Buddha's dying words, you know, some of the Buddha's dying words were like, strive on with diligence. And I've often wondered, like, you know, what that meant. And, you know, for someone like me, who's a one on the Enneagram and a perfectionist and, and very, can be very type A, you know, that means, like, work a bit harder, like, really, you know, get down to it. And so I asked Michelle McDonald um, what she thought the Buddha meant by that. And so she asked three Sayadaws in Burma that same question, you know, when she was there. And they all said the same thing. And they all said... Strive on with diligence is the fulfillment of remembrance. So it's just to remember when we forget. To come back to um, what matters most to us and are we living our lives in alignment with what matters most to us. That contributes more compassion and love and kindness and peace in the world versus separation and division and greed, hatred and delusion. So ultimately, you know, can we trust life? Can we trust life as it's unfolding? Can we allow life, can we allow the annoying person that's in our lives to be our teacher? Or do we want to just push them, you know, away and not really see that they are showing us what it is that we need to to learn about ourselves? So I want to just share this um, sort of little, little essay from Rainier Name. Some of you may have seen this. 
that uh, she talks about how she's um, learning, slowly learning not to react to everything that bothers her. I'm slowly learning that the energy it takes to react to every bad thing that happens to you drains you and stops you from seeing the other good things in life. I'm slowly learning that I'm not going to be everyone's cup of tea and I won't be able to get everyone to treat me the way I want to be treated and that's okay. I'm slowly learning that trying so hard to win anyone is just a waste of time and energy and it fills you with nothing but emptiness. I'm slowly learning that not reacting doesn't mean I'm okay with things. It just means I'm choosing to rise above it. I'm choosing to take the lesson it has served and learn from it. I'm choosing to be the bigger person. I'm choosing my peace of mind because that's what I truly need. I don't need more drama. I don't need people making me feel like I'm not good enough. I don't need fights and arguments and fake connections. I'm slowly learning that sometimes not saying anything at all says everything. I'm slowly learning that reacting to things that upset you gives someone else power over your emotions. You can't control what others do, but you can control how you respond, how you handle it, how you perceive it, and how much of it you want to take personally. I'm slowly learning the most of the t- that most of the time, these situations say nothing about you and a lot about the other person. I'm slowly learning that maybe all these disappointments are just there to teach us how to love ourselves because that will be the armor and the shield we need against the people who try to bring us down. They will save us when people try to shake our confidence or when they make us feel like we're worthless. I'm slowly learning that even if I react, it won't change anything. It won't make people suddenly love and respect me. It won't magically change their minds. Sometimes it's better to just let things be let people go. Don't fight for closure. Don't ask for explanations. Don't chase answers and don't expect people to understand where you're coming from. I'm slowly learning that life is better lived when you don't center it on what's happening around you and center it on what's happening inside of you instead. Work on yourself and your inner peace and you'll come to realize that not reacting to every little thing that bothers you is the first ingredient to living a happy and healthy life. You know, um, about five or six years ago, I started using the pronouns they, them. And I would always get so pissed after I would tell a friend, especially, um, or family member that these are the pronouns that I use and they would always, you know, continue to misgender me. And I just recognized like how much suffering I experienced whenever I would get upset about that. And what I've learned to do is just develop just a lot more patience, just a lot more compassion that we live in a very conditioned, binaried culture. And it takes time you know, for people to change. I even misgender my trans friends sometimes. So it's, in a lot of ways, being born in this incarnation has helped me develop just so much more patience and compassion and acceptance and tolerance for things being the way they are. There's so much that I can't control 
on the outside. But what I can control is how I choose to relate to. That's where I feel our power lies, is when we have choice. I can allow that to bother me, or I can find just a little bit more patience or a little bit more compassion, that it's not easy, this life, or undoing a conditioning. So I'm running out of juice, so I will have you endure yet another song (laughs) to um, just remember who you truly are and what your Buddha nature is. You're insecure, don't know what for. You'll find your way once you walk through the Dharma door. Don't need ego to cover up. Being the way that you are is enough. Everyone else in the hall can see it. Everyone else but you. Yogi, you light up the world like nobody else. The way that you free your mind undoes overwhelm. And when you smile from your heart, it ain't hard to tell. We all know, oh, that's what makes you beautiful. If only you saw what we could see You'll understand it's on you to be truly free Right now's the time to let go so you can believe And thus know That's what makes you beautiful That's what makes you beautiful That's what makes you beautiful Thank you for your kind and generous attention. Let's just sit for a few moments. May the efforts of your practice and time in Sangha and community be of benefit to yourselves, each other, your family, friends, and loved ones, and all beings everywhere. May all beings awaken and be free. good chunk of time for walking practice and looking up at the sky or playing with the turkeys if they're still up um, and we'll be back in the hall at nine o'clock for some thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate